privilege to me to introduce Dr. Byron this morning. Dr. Ralph Byron was uh, for a number of years chief surgeon at City of Hope Hospital in Southern California and just recently retired and uh, he's busier in his uh, retirement than he was before as the Codex uh, are. He was a great blessing to us and the men's retreat enriched us greatly and I'm sure he will enrich you as well this morning. Dr. Byron. Well, we're delighted to be here. Um, how many of you men were at the retreat? Oh, that's good. The, um, you have a terrific group of men in the church, and um, I uh, looked them all over, and I figured the potential was unlimited. So um, the future of the church is going to be nothing short of sensational, and uh, it uh, was great to be with them. You know, you get introduced, and it's a little bit like the two uh, milk cows that were grazing in the meadow, and uh, they were eyeing one another, and along came one of these new super-modern milk trucks that was aluminized and glistening in the sun, and on it it had standardized, pasteurized, homogenized. And the cows eyed it for a moment, then looked at each other, and one said to the other, you know, it kind of makes a girl feel inadequate, doesn't it? (laughs) For those of you who are visiting, why, you will have the best next week, and um, so don't be discouraged because I'm here today. It's uh, a little bit like the uh, two little boys who went to a wedding, and uh, one had never been to a wedding before, and so the one who had been before was the world's authority and was pointing out who everybody was, and the best man came in, and the little visitor said, uh, who's that? Oh, he said, that's the best man. Well, a little visitor said, if that's the best man, it's going to be a sorry wedding. (laughs) This morning, I would like to do something that is sort of fun, and that is to go through the Bible by way of a series of verses. And I find that long after I have come and gone, these verses will sort of echo and re-echo in your mind, and God will use them on a continuing basis. And, of course, um, it doesn't hurt to jot them down and maybe reread them as we go along. If you start um, back in Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, and starting in the fourth verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This word that I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach it diligently to thy children. Thou shalt speak of it when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest in the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Now, this is a very significant verse. First, it's a great verse, and it's one that's great for you, and it's great for me. But in many ways, it is the key to the Jewish people because it is the favorite verse of every Jew that ever lived. So that if you wish to witness to uh, one of your neighbors or one of your colleagues or one of your business associates who is Jewish and you'd like to quote a verse, this is a great one to start because it is their favorite verse. I learned this sort of the hard way from uh, I had a Jewish boss, very brilliant, very godless, and he was very Jewish. And uh, he had a ferocious temper, and he had all the qualities that you might dislike. But one day he was telling me how he had visited a friend uh, for a Thanksgiving dinner 
who was a member of the Baptist Church, and he said was a wonderful Christian, and that was quite a compliment from my boss. And he said, I had worried about going because I felt I'd be uncomfortable in the house. And he said they wanted me to stay for the weekend. And he said they had a beautiful Thanksgiving dinner, and my friend stood up just before the dinner started, and he uh, said, we're going to say grace. And my boss said, I just knew this was the moment I had feared. And uh, my friend quoted this verse, and he said, I knew he did it for me, because it's the favorite verse of every Jew that ever lived. Well, I thought, bless your little heart, if it's a favorite verse of you and every Jew that ever lived, maybe I ought to learn it and have it on my fingertips. And it is literally true. A friend of mine who's a sort of a kingmaker in Southern California, if you want to be mayor or on the city council or something, you have to have his support. And he was named Man of the Year, and he is Jewish, and uh, they had a banquet for him, and they had almost a thousand Jews at the... Um, ambassador hotel in the coconut grove room and he turned to the man who was running it and he said i would like my friend dr byron to say grace well the fellow swallowed his teeth and uh, turned to me and said will you do it i said sure so i quoted this and uh, i came down and they said that's the most beautiful prayer we've ever heard and i mean uh, i was in the hearts of every one of them instantly just from using this verse Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This word that I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. Thou shalt teach it diligently to thy children. Thou shalt speak of it when thou sittest in thine house, when thou walkest in the way, when thou liest down, when thou risest up. Now we look around, and uh, you heard mentioned today that there are minor instabilities in the Near East, and you look around in the, our country, and there are problems with the economy, and there are problems with the ecology, and you can just go up and down the line, and you say, boy, uh, wouldn't it be great if uh, we could solve some of these problems? Adlai Stevens used to say, Stevenson used to say that none of the world's problems are ever solved. They're just replaced by bigger problems. And in some ways, that's true. And there are difficulties growing up and the teenagers and the drug scene and so on. And you think, wouldn't it be great if everybody were a Christian? But it's interesting what God says in Second Chronicles 7.14. It says, if, and God is speaking, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now note, it says, if my people who are called by my name, that is you, that is I. The word Christian carries the name Christ in it. We are, in a sense, small models, small images of Christ. Um, We are more and more conformed to his image as we grow in the Lord. And what he says, if my people who are called by my name, that is you, that is I. If we humble ourselves, if we turn from our wicked way, if we pray, then he says that he will hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. Now, we do a lot of research at the City of Hope, and um, um, we would be greatly helped if we had an indicator that was red when you had cancer and green when you didn't. And then you would treat with treatment XYZ, whether surgery, x-ray, immune therapy, whatever, and you would say, ah, we have gone from red to green, we've cured them. But we don't have that kind of an indicator. So we have to follow people for 2, 5, 10, 20 years, so on down the line. 
to really be sure just how the treatments are working. Now, what God says is that there is an indicator in America, and the indicator is you, the indicator is I. And this is frightening. What happens to America depends on little me or little you. If we play with these things, if we give lip service to them and then go on as though they didn't exist, America will go down the tubes. On the other hand, God promises that if we will humble ourselves, if we will pray, if we will seek his face, if we will turn from our wicked way, then that he will hear from heaven, forgive our sin, and heal our land. So that you and I become very important. And while it would be wonderful if everybody became a Christian, and indeed it would be, it would be terrific if you and I really move for God. If we really put this into action. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So you and I have a great responsibility. Now if you go to Isaiah 49.2, it says, The Lord has made my tongue like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hid me. Now what it is saying is that you and I are to be a polished shaft hidden in the hand of the Lord. Now in those days everybody carried a spear, a polished shaft. What you did, you went to a hardwood tree and you took out something roughly the shape of a spear. And then you worked on it and you balanced it and you took the rough edges off. And then finally you polished it till it was as perfect as you could make it. And then you would place it in the holder in the quiver. And you knew as you were making it, there would be a day when you would use it, when you would need it, that your very life could depend upon it. And so you made it as perfect as you could. Now, I'm sure if you went to the hardwood tree and said, um, how would you like to be whittled on? How would you like to be worked over and everything? Well, I'd say, nah, I'm happy where I am. And, of course, none of us like to be whittled on. You go to your best friend and say, I don't like the way you were dressed, I don't like the way you talk, and then you look for a new best friend because people don't like to be worked on and whittled on and all. But here it is. The Lord has made my tongue like a sharp sword, and the shadow of his hand hath he hid me and made me a polished shaft. What God does is he works us over. He takes the rough edges off. He polishes us. Now, I understand in those days with the instruments available, it took somewhere in the neighborhood of 36 hours to make a polished shaft. And it took a lot of work with what was there. And then you had something that could be hurled at the lion, the bear, whatever, and with deadly accuracy. You and I are to be a polished shaft hidden in the hand of the Lord, available for every assignment so God can say, go and we go, do this and we do it, and we are not only available, but we are ready for the particular assignment. Why do we come and look at God's Word? Why do we increase our prayer time? Why do we fellowship together? In order that we might become a polished shaft available for God to use so that um, he has but to say, go and we go, do this and we do it. The Lord has made my tongue like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand hath he hit me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver hath he hit me. Now if you go to Isaiah 54, 2, It says, Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Now what it is saying is that you and I as Christians are not just to stand still. We are not just to sort of stay uh, 
on an even plane and say, well, I've come up the ladder a little bit now, and now I'll just kind of try to hold on where I am. No. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitations. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. I like to think of the cords as uh, prayer time that you spend. Lengthen your prayer time. Improve your prayer time. Make it more meaningful and really get it into operation. Don't let it sort of run out of gas and say, well, I'm busy today, Lord, maybe I'll talk to you tomorrow. But get it into action. Strengthening your stakes. Get into the Word. Become familiar with it. Read it. Meditate on it. Store it in your heart so that you have it available, so that it is there. Now, in the Egypt, uh, when we were there some years ago, I, the Christians, and I understand there are roughly 7 million or something like that, but a, a considerable number, uh, they had a measure of freedom to read their Bibles or do whatever they wanted. Now, all of a sudden, in just a matter of hours, why, pressures are on, and it's beginning to be dangerous to be a member of their group, and all of a sudden, Bibles are more difficult to come by, and it doesn't take much to change things. Right now, you and I have a golden opportunity. We have an open Bible. We can carry it. We can read it. We can meditate on it. We have it. We can have it on our nightstand. We can have it on the end table. We can have it on our table in front of the couch. And nobody throws you in prison. wouldn't take much to change this. But now is a golden opportunity. I was up at Forest Home, which is a conference ground up in the San Bernardino Mountains. And it was New Year's Eve. And there were 45 of the top Christian laymen in Southern California. And they said, Byron, talk to us. I said, okay. I said, some of you are living on your bank accounts. And boy, you could see them bristle, because most of them were doing adequately well financially. Oh, I said, I'm not referring to your money. I'm referring to your spiritual bank accounts. I said, many of you haven't learned a verse in ten years. You're just living on ones that you learned before that. Many of you, your prayer life has shriveled up to where it's almost saying grace and hello, Lord, and good night. And... Uh, you could see them sort of slither down in their chairs because this is true. Oh, these were all men that you would have said, boy, these are fantastic men. They're on mission boards and they're on their elders and they're... This is a great group of men. I can approve of them. And yet they were just gradually running out of spiritual gas. Now, what it says here is that we're not to stand still or just slowly go downhill, but enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of your habitation. Spare not. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. Now, if you go to uh, Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, you come to what is perhaps the most misquoted verse in the Bible. It's an example of how perhaps if you quote just part of a verse, you may get only part of the meaning. You've heard it said that it's God's word, it'll not return void. But it's interesting what it says. It's, as the rain cometh down, and God is speaking, as the rain cometh down from heaven and the snow, and returneth not thither, but goeth forth to water the earth, that it might give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in that whereto I send it. Now, what it is saying is that the Word of God is powerful, but it must be God's Word out of God's mouth. Now, this is where you and I come into the picture. If we have a walk that is close to the Lord, God is able to speak through us, and then it becomes God's Word out of God's mouth. And then it will not return void. 
Now, if this were not true, you'd get a great Shakespearean actor, uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier or Richard Burton, someone like that, and you'd hire a television network, and you'd have them read 15 minutes every night from the Bible, and you'd get the job done. And they would read beautifully, and their accent would be on the right syllable, and, I mean, it would really be right down the line, and you'd say, oh, that's beautiful. And yet, a fumbling, stumbling, bumbling little me or little you stammering along far more effective than a mighty Shakespearean actor because God is able to speak through little you or little me. And this really is a great encouragement. God doesn't say you've got to be ten feet tall. He doesn't say you have to have voices like your choir or something. He simply wants us to be his, to walk with him, to be close to him, to be his men, to be his women, and then he's able to speak through us, and it becomes God's word out of God's mouth. As the rain cometh down and the snow from heaven, and returneth not thither, but goeth forth to water the earth, that it might give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in that whereto I sent it. Now, if you go to the verse that our pal over here quoted a few moments ago, or read uh, Ezekiel 22:30, it's a verse that has had great significance for me, because it's the verse that God used in my life to really get me moving. I was smoldering along. You could say, are you a Christian? Yes. Are you doing anything about it? No. And this verse had a great impact. God was looking at the land of Judah, and he and they had two to five million people at the time. And he said, I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Now, the things that really hit me about this was that God looked at the likely area, not the unlikely area of the Philippines or someplace in Central Africa or in inner China or something like that. He looked at the area that had been born in a revival, the area of Israel, Judah. And he looked at the area that had the law and the prophets, and he looked at the area that had seen his providential care. And he said, I looked for one individual who would make up the hedge and stand in the gap for the land that I not destroy it. And there was not one. Well, I couldn't believe God looked for single individuals. I thought he looked for the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands, or even the millions. And wouldn't it be great if we had ten million or five million or a hundred thousand? And God said it'd be great if there were one. And this astonished me, and I wondered about the West Coast, and I didn't know how many there might be. And then I wondered about me. Nah, not you. So in a quiet little way, I said, Lord, in a small way, I would like to be this kind of a man for you. One who will make up the hedge and stand in the gap. One that you can say, go and I'll go, do this and I'll do it. Now, there's a rule that God always takes you at your point of highest commitment. And this was way above any commitment I had made. And... God takes you seriously when you say, trusting you for the strength, I want to be this kind of a man, this kind of a woman, this kind of a person for you. One that you're man, you're woman. Now, if you go to the New Testament, the last command that Jesus gave was, And ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. And so he says, not that we're supposed to have a super tenor voice, not that we're supposed to be super brilliant, but that we are to be witnesses for him. 
there is a great rule, and that is a person with an experience is never at a loss with a person with an argument. So that when you share the gospel, share the Lord Jesus, and you use your testimony, you are on the strongest of ground. First of all, you know what it was like to be without Christ. You know what it's like to come face to face with his claims. You know what it's like to accept him, and you know what it's like to live for him, and how it wears and wears well. You and I are to be witnesses for him. Now, it is said that there were roughly 120 um, in the upper room at the time of Pentecost, right after uh, Jesus had been crucified, raised from the dead, and, and they were sitting there, <clears throat> and the fulfillment came, and ye shall receive power after that the Spirit of God has come upon you. And so here they were, a handful of seemingly uh, weak untrained individuals. They were not the mighty people out of the Sanhedrin. They were not the mighty Pharisees. These were just average you and me. And yet they carried the gospel to the world. The Roman Empire with 113 million people, they got it throughout the Roman Empire. They carried it apparently from Resht over into China. They carried it by way of Thomas down into India. And a handful of men who really meant business carried the message to the world. 300 million people at that time and a handful of men without airplanes or anything of this type did it. There is a story that um, after Jesus ascended into heaven and after the crucifixion, that Satan gathered his henchmen around and he said, we've got a problem um, and we're going to have to do something about this that Jesus did. What are we going to do? And one of them said, well, uh, we'll just tell people it isn't true. Oh, Satan said, the evidence that it's true is just overwhelming. And uh, no, um, we can't do it that way. And another one said, well, um, we'll just tell them that there are many ways, and this isn't the best, it's just one of many ways. Oh, Satan said, you could never convince people of that. Or what Jesus did on the cross, why it is so obviously the greatest way that the other ways just fall apart and disappear. And the third one said, well, let's tell them it's true. Let's tell them it's the best way, but there's no hurry about doing this. And that was the plan that was accepted, that they would simply uh, go along and say, sure, it's the best, sure, it's a nice way, sure, it's a wonderful way, sure, it's the answer, but there's no hurry. Have your good time, and later on you can uh, do this. There's a great verse back in Ecclesiastes, the 11th chapter and the 9th verse. And it says, Rejoice, young man, in thy youth. Let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth. Walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. It says, Be glad you're young. Go where you want to go. Do what you want to do. If it looks good to you, do it. And you say, Hmm, that's great. That's The Bible isn't as sticky as I thought it was. Uh, that's really pretty good. And then it goes on, but know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. All of a sudden you come to attention. Hmm, maybe uh, I better take another look. It says, of course you can be uh, glad you're young, and of course you can do this and that, and anything looks good to you. But there is a time of reckoning. You and I are to be witnesses for him. There is a good deal of evidence in the scriptures that we are really in the last days. Now, last days may be five years, ten years, something like that, but it's a very finite period of time. And you and I have an instruction, and that is to be a witness for him. 
that we are to carry this message. It's not a matter of saying, well, we're 2% bigger than we were last year. No. Boise has 150,000 people, 200,000. The basin has more. You and I are to be a witness. We are to get this message to every man, woman, and child in the area. We are to set this as an objective. We are to sit down and just as you, if you're going to build a building, you know, Jesus said uh, a campaigner, a general doesn't start his operation and his battle without saying, uh, how am I going to do it? Do I have the materials to do it with and the like? Well, you sit down and say, here is the area, a couple hundred thousand people. What do we have available? Well, we've got television, and we've got radio, and we've got men to go, and we've got the newspapers, and, and we've got a job to do. And we need to put all of these things and make them operational and set out with a single goal. Disraeli used to say the secret of success is to know your objective and never lose sight of it. Well, your objective is to be a witness for him, to your neighbors, to the person across the street, people with whom you work, people you play with, uh, to be a witness right down the line. Now, it's a lot easier to say, well, let's be witnesses to the children, because in a sense, um, you can talk down to them. It's a lot tougher to talk to your boss or to talk to the people with whom you work that you're going to see every day. You and I are to be witnesses for him. Peter put it this way, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to everyone that asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and a reverent trust. Now, you have to be very careful you don't fuzz the gospel up. That when somebody that's uh, when your neighbor or something uh, asks you what you believe or you have a chance to share with them, and you say, I think everybody ought to have faith in a day like this. And uh, they kind of know that you don't know what you believe either. And... Be right on target. There is a God. He loves us. He's interested. He's communicated. The Bible is His communication. Jesus Christ is uniquely the Son of God. He died on the cross. He was bodily raised from the dead. He's going to come again. And faith in Him is the answer. And if they've seen a difference in me or in you, it's because of what Christ has done in our life. But have it right on your fingertips. As one of my friends puts it, write it down once so at least... You have framed in words what you believe. So when you have an opportunity, it isn't fuzzed up or vague or something you can't understand, but it's right down the line. Now, you do it in a nice way. You do it in a conversational way. You do it in a sharing way, but be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks the reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and a reverent trust. We put a good deal of emphasis at the conference on the fact that without Jesus Christ, you have no chance at all. And this is a question that's asked many, many times on the college campuses. That's a, the question asked me more than any other. What are my chances without Jesus? And I let them know in a quiet way that without Jesus Christ, they have no chance at all. You see, it isn't a matter of a 10 or a 50 or a 90% chance. Without the Lord Jesus, you have no chance at all. This means there's an urgency. I don't know whether we have a year, five years, eight years, ten years, fifteen, or maybe a matter of months. But whatever we have, we are to make certain that we get this message out, that we share this wonderful good news, that Jesus Christ is the answer. Now we come to what I consider the most uh, difficult verse in the Bible. Oh, you say, there are a lot of toughies. But this one, no one has ever really challenged. You go to 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, and we'll start in the 4th verse. 
The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not worldly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, every vain thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And here it comes. Bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Now, it's tough to live for God, but it's a million times tougher to think the way you ought to think. Uh, what your motives are when you do something. Um, Dorothy, my wife, and she'll probably be at the second service. Uh, she's probably on her way now. Uh, we went to a concert, and uh, Southern California, like Boise, once in 10 million years, has rain. And uh, it rained hard, and we came out, and the street, a 100-foot-wide street out front, was running curb to curb with water. And we were parked on the other side. And uh, how were we going to get across? And it was obvious that uh, we were going to get wet. And I saw a lot of people were watching, so I picked Dorothy up and carried her across. Uh, and you could hear people saying, now, isn't that beautiful? But if they knew what I was really thinking, it was, well, I'll give them a show. And it wasn't beautiful at all. It was just that I was going to show off a little bit that I could do it and that I did do it. And... Um, our motives, our thoughts. The Bible says that the uh, uh, heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, if you have any doubt about that, you hit your thumb with a hammer and you watch what comes out and you think, boy, where did all that come from? And it was inside. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The the story is told that a man of 62 died in New York during the late Depression, and he was thrown in the chute, and he arrived at the pearly gates, and Peter uh, said, May I see your credentials, the blood of the Lord Jesus? And he said, I have no credentials. Well, Peter said, How come you came here? Well, he said, I had no choice. They just threw me in the chute, and here I am. Well, Peter said, That's the first mistake in 1900 years, but he said, Come on in, and we'll hold your judgment right now. So uh, he went in, and in heaven they have a fantastic setup. They're able to run your life on a dome screen in full dimension, full color, uh, stereophonic sound, and uh, instead of background music, they just play the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. And oh yes, they have a special process where they are able to put on what you were doing, superimpose what you were thinking at that particular moment. And Peter said, we will run your life before you and the jury, and when you see something really good, tell us, and we will stop the camera and take special note. Well, using these criteria, they went through the first year, nothing good, five years, nothing good, 10, 20, still nothing good, 30, 40, and at the age of 42, for the first time, he said, stop the camera. I remember it well. He said it was during the Depression, and he said it was on Christmas Eve, about 11 o'clock at night, and it was snowing, there was a blizzard, and he said, I was walking across Brooklyn Bridge half frozen, and of all things, a nearly frozen 70-year-old woman bumped into me. And she said, sir, would you give me a nickel for a cup of coffee? And I felt in my pocket, and I had one nickel. Now, I said, I wanted a cup of coffee. I knew nobody was watching. I knew she couldn't do anything for me. I knew I'd never see her again. And I knew I didn't have any more money. And he said, finally, I gave her that nickel. Well, Peter said, very commendable. Continue. They went through the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years of his life, and he died. And that was the one good thing by heaven's standards that he had done. And so the jury went out, and when they came back, Peter said, have you reached a decision? And they said, we have. And what is your decision? Give the man back his nickel and send him to hell. <laughs> 
Now, I hasten to add, it's only by the grace of God that any of us get in. And if we had to rely on our puny little righteousness to make it, why, you'd say, "Uh uh-uh, no chance. But God loves you and me, and he has made it possible as we come in simple childlike faith. He has made it possible for us to be born again, to be escorted into the presence of the King, to be prepared to live in an eternity with the Lord Jesus, prepared for the place that the Lord Jesus has prepared for us. So you and I are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, most of us don't like the word obedience. It's a terrible word. I mean, my youngest boy, Ricky, when he was a little younger, you'd say, Ricky, do you want to watch television? Yeah. Ricky, do you want me to play ball with you? Yeah. Uh, Ricky, uh, do you want some ice cream? Yeah. Ricky, go to bed. No! Now, you see, for the first time, the problem of obedience moved into the picture. Ricky doesn't like to obey, and we don't like to obey very much either. And yet, here it is, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, in medicine, one of the standards on which you can be sued is if you don't keep up with the average in the community. And if you, uh, your treatment is below the average level, you are subject to being sued, providing it can be proven and the like. Now, it doesn't say that you and I are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of the average in the community. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says to bring it into captivity to the obedience of Christ. They tell the story that when they were moving out of Assyria and coming and taking the little city-states in the Near East, uh, that each little city-state had its walled town, had its little king, and had its little army. And they would come, and they would send in some ambassadors, uh, and they would stand before the king and say, if you surrender, why, we will um, um, allow you to live. And you can keep some of your things. You'll be our slaves, but you will live, and uh, to some degree, you will continue as you are. But if you refuse to surrender, we will burn your city to the ground, break the walls down, wipe out every man, woman, and child, and there will be no remembrance of you under heaven. Take your choice. So one by one, the little city-states were surrendering. And they came to a little bigger one, and they went, the ambassadors went in, saluted the king, and uh, uh, said, Now you surrender or else. And uh, the king said, uh, Call me in one of my soldiers. soldier came in, came to attention before his king, saluted him. And the king said, Take out your dagger, stab yourself in the heart. Fell down dead. Again a second time, take out your dagger. Stab yourself in the heart. Fell down dead. And again a third. And then in a quiet voice, the king turned to the ambassadors and said, I have 10,000 soldiers that are obedient unto the death. If you want to fight this kind of an army, we're ready. Well, they went on to the next town because they weren't going to fuss with an army that had that kind of obedience built into it. You and I are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now, if you don't think this is tough, when you leave here today, you say, well, for the next hour, I'm going to try to have all my thoughts in obedience to Christ. And you will be astonished at how difficult this is. But if you think the right things, why, you will live the right things. You and I are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Then finally, in the book of Revelation, in the second chapter, Jesus is addressing the seven churches. Uh, The churches were geographical. They were real. Um, They 
were about anywhere from 30 to about 46 miles apart, about what a fast walker could walk in a day. And they, to some extent, would typify different churches today. To some extent, they typified different Christians today. And to some extent, they typified the church in history. So the church at Ephesus, the first one, starting in the second chapter of Revelation, was traditionally a great church. It is felt to be like the apostolic church, the first century church. Uh, Tradition is that Timothy was the first pastor, that John was an elder there, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a member until her death. It was a great church, and it was very sound in what it believed. Jesus said, I know your uh, good works, I know your soundness, how you can't stand those of false doctrine. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against you. You have lost your first love. What did he mean? You watch a young man with his girl, and she drops her handkerchief. He's down like a shot to get it. He may bump her head, but he gets the handkerchief for her. She comes up to the car from the wrong side of the door, and he opens the door. He may knock her flat, but he's got the door open for her. But now they've been married for a year, and she drops her gloves, and he says, Pick them up. I never saw anybody could drop things, lose things the way you do. And uh, she comes up to the car door and waits for him to open. He says, What's the matter? You're paralyzed? It's not locked. Now, you see, he still loves her, but some of that freshness of first love is gone. Well, the Church of Ephesus was doing everything right. They had home Bible classes, and they had evangelistic outreaches, and they had preaching services, and they had uh, choir practice. They had the whole schmo, but they had lost some of that thrill and first love. They had grown cold, even though they were doing all the right things and going through all the right motions. And Jesus warns them, return to your first love, to that thrill of glory, that excitement. One of my friends, uh, he was young at the time, was in Stanford and was a straight-A student in engineering and physics. And um, he came to Christ, and uh, I had witnessed to him and several others, and uh, he had was really remarkably converted. And uh, I heard him give his testimony two weeks later, and he said, Two weeks ago, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I've had the most wonderful two weeks of my life. He said, I'm floating in the clouds. I can hardly sleep at night. It's fantastic. So I was lecturing up near Stanford, and who should walk through the door back here but this young man? This is now six months later. And I figured nothing I could say would be as exciting as for them to hear his testimony. So I said, young fellow, I said, come on up. I'd like them to hear your testimony. Well, he came up, and he shifted weight from foot to foot, and he said, well, I'm a Christian. Been pretty tough, though. Yeah, I guess I'm glad I accepted Christ, but he said, been pretty rough six months. And I thought, what's happened to this young man? who was so excited, who was floating in the clouds, who could hardly sleep at night. And he's grown cold. He's lost, in a sense, that first love. And what Jesus says to you and to me, return to your first love. So in you, and you and I are to have a freshness in our walk. We are to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We are to be witnesses for him. We are to be so close in our walk with the Lord that the Lord is able to speak through us so it becomes God's Word out of God's mouth. We are to enlarge the place of our tent. We are to be a polished shaft hidden in the hand of the Lord. We are to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked way that He may heal our land and forgive our sin and hear our prayer. We are to remember, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We are to be such ones who will make up the hedge and stand in the gap before God for the land. Shall we just close in a word of prayer? 
Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray in a very special way that you'll just write these simple things on the tables of our hearts that we'll be your men, your women, that we will trust you, we'll move for you, that we'll enlarge the place of our tent, that we'll be a polished shaft hidden in your hand. As our heads are bowed, how many of you trusting God for the strength and saying, Lord, in a small way, I'd like to be this kind of a person for you, a polished shaft, one that will make up the hedge, stand in the gap, or you can say, you name it, Lord, I'll do it, but I'll trust you in this. How many of you want to be such a one who will make up the hedge, stand in the gap? Just put your hand up and then put it down. Yes, yes, yes. Don't do it if you don't mean it, but if you really mean it, remember that God never sends you on an assignment, but what he also gives you the strength to carry it out. So it is not in your strength that you will move this way, but it's his. Are there others? Yes, God bless you and you and you and you and you and you. Are there others? Yes. Are there others? Now perhaps one of you might have come and you've never invited Jesus to be your Savior. The one who loves you, who cares for you, who died for you, who was raised from the dead for you, who's coming again for you, who loves you enough to do all this. You've never said, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I'd like you to be my Savior, to be my Lord. You've never done this, but you'd like to do it this morning. Just slip your hand up quietly and then put it down. Yes, God bless you. Are there others? Just put it up high and then put it down if there are others. Now, Father, we thank you for the upraised hands. We thank you that you've seen, that you've heard. And we thank you that as we move to be such ones who will make up the hedge and stand in the gap before you, you never leave us, never forsake us. And so we would say thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.